Hi everyone and welcome to Anesthesia Coffee Break. So for this episode, we're going to go through Stan's Viva. So the actual Viva that he had in his exam, he's had a lot of requests for this. So why not put it on this podcast? Uh, are you ready, Stan? Yeah, ready to bring back some uh, bad memories. Absolutely. <laughs> this is a traumatic time for most of us, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, how did you feel going into this Viva actually? So I remember it, uh, it was a long time ago, but I was very nervous and I remember walking in and the first thing I remember was uh, looking at uh, David Story. So David Story <laughs> is uh, one of the Austin consultants, very smart man, mm. and uh, he is very intimidating. So <laughs> I recognized him immediately and it sort of made me even more nervous. And, and as you can see from my vibe, look, uh, at the end of the day, I think for most of us, when we, when we do the Bible, we sort of step out and think like we didn't do very well. Mm-hmm. But look, in hindsight, you know, when you look through what you went, you, know, you actually go through a lot of content. And mm. I think a lot of us just focus on the things that we get wrong and mm. not so much on the things that we get right. Yeah. So, clearly your perception of your experience was completely different absolutely. to what it was. And um, when, I, when I think about that, I think we've known through most of our schooling years that you come out of an exam, everyone's saying how terrible it is. And especially in this exam, it's so big, you cannot focus on that. You've got to let your mind not go to those bad thoughts and just focus on the next task at hand, I think. That's right. And once you get into the flow of things, it actually feels, uh, actually feels nice. It actually feels, you know, you, you, get, you get a role and when you get a question that uh, you've heard of before and you know how to answer it, it really gets you onto a good, good start. Yeah. Actually, before we go on, because this, this could be its own episode anyway, but I'm going to ask this question. What did you do on the morning or before the Viva? What was your preparation? So look, I'm going to be honest with you. I actually don't remember that much mm. of that morning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think from my vague recollection, mm-hmm. it was really just about sitting in a quiet corner and just looking through my notes mm-hmm. and not doing too much other than mm-hmm. just keeping my mind sort of at the task at hand. Mm-hmm. So I know, I know a lot of people do different things. So a lot of people will, will listen to music, will socialize, will interact. I'm a little bit introverted when it comes to exam, I, I, I tend to um, be a little bit quiet and, and try to get focused. Mm-hmm. So um, that was my experience um, heading up to, yeah. to my Vivas. That's interesting. Um, I remember a lot of talk around, you know, not doing something or doing something before an exam. And I looked at some research kind of recently, which talked about what kind of music was best to improve your IQ or improve your exam performance. And, you know, people talk about classical music being such an important thing or whatever. But really, it's not just the type of music. It's the type of music that you like. So, for example, if you hate classical music, that's not going to be great prep. Or if you hate doing something, if you hate socializing, or if you hate being by yourself, it's probably not going to be the right thing for exam preparation. So I think I'm a big fan of saying doing whatever makes you happy and puts you to your good place, that's probably the thing that you should do that gets you in a really good frame of mind. I think that's spot on. It's, it's all about preparing yourself the best way that you can and everyone's an individual. And the thing is, you want to you wanna have those uh, steps in place beforehand. So I, I wouldn't start listening to music, you know, for the first time before yeah. before this exam. You know, I, I would actually know yourself and know, you know what you like and, and mm. what makes you the best that you can be on that day. Mm. Actually, I remember really accurately what I did. So I remember the days leading up, I had the takeaway that I loved. So I just got my local restaurant to make me lots of food what I liked. I ate exactly the right thing that I wanted. I slept well. I was as well as I could have. I didn't sleep particularly well, but how I normally do for an exam, I woke up at the right time, the same breakfast, the same coffee. It was just performance, exactly what I do every day for going to work or going, going to study. 
And then, yeah, I just, uh, I always chat to my sister before I do any exam. She always makes me feel good. So I don't chat to anyone who's going to make me feel crap. And then after that, just, yeah, went in really early. I always love getting there early. I parked in a spot that I'd already planned. And uh, yeah, I was just chatting with just light chat with people and then looking over notes to keep my mind sharp. So, yeah. Yep. Routine, structure and familiarity. Absolutely. Winners. Winners. <laughs> okay, let's get started. So, so you, you, st- you step in, the examiner most likely goes, yeah. welcome. So, so, just, so just before you go in, um, they'll always have a little sheet up on the board or a little, little piece of paper up on the board with the first question. So the, the first question they had is, what is the balloon used for in a pulmonary artery catheter? So I, so I had that question when I was step, when I was um, just waiting on the front door and you, you've got about a minute uh, to sort of think about it. So I was there. I've never used a, I, I've never used the pulmonary artery catheter before, but I'd read about it, sort of knew about it. So I sort of had an idea in terms of where this uh, stem was going. So mm. in my head already, I, I had already played out where it was heading to. I guess, as you can see from the start, it got a little bit, it got a little bit frustrating because I felt like, you know, I wanted to move on, but uh, I felt like the examiners were holding me back. But, you know, <laughs> we, we, got, we got the flow in the end. Okay, good. So I'll now ask the questions that Stan has recalled and the answers that he's recalled. And he's actually put in some notes about, you know, how maybe the examiner was feeling and how he was feeling. So we're just going to literally go through that now. So Stan, what is the balloon used for in a pulmonary artery catheter? It's used to wedge the pulmonary artery and produce a static column of fluid. And what else? I can't think of anything else at this moment in time. Well, why do we blow up the balloon at the start? Look, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know. And he's also written so that you can feel the examiner getting slightly frustrated. <laughs> uh, what's the path the balloon travels? It travels from the superior vena cava, the right atrium, the right ventricle, and to the pulmonary artery. So how do you get the catheter to get into the right place? Ah, uh, uh, it, it aids in the direction of the catheter. Correct. It's for flow direction. Now, can you draw me a trace? All right. So I'll start drawing the y-axis, which will have pressure. The x-axis will have time. Uh, the right atrium, which has the AC and V wave. And the pressure is about 5 millimeters of mercury. The right ventricle uh, has a systolic of 25 millimeters of mercury and the diastolic zero. The pulmonary artery has a systolic of 25 millimeters of mercury and the diastolic of eight. Uh, and then finally, you get the wedge pressure. Uh, you also get an AC and V wave, and the pressure is about 10 millimeters of mercury. And I'll put a link to that graph in the story notes. Hold on. Is the wedge pressure higher or lower than the palmary diastolic pressure? Uh, no, sorry, it's lower. How does it measure cardiac output? It uses the thermodilution and utilization of the Stuart Hamilton equation. Um, and if I could quickly write it down, so it's the temperature of blood minus the temperature in the ejectate multiplied by the volume, uh, multiplied by a constant, and it's divided by the change in temperature. Mm-hmm. Can you draw me a diagram and explain? So yes, I can. So on the x-axis, I'll have the change in temperature, and on the x-axis, I'll have time. So here's the, what the graph looks like. So a larger area under the curve represents a smaller cardiac output, and a smaller area under the curve represents a larger cardiac output as more blood is able to minimize the change in temperature. What is this? And then I point to the TB, or temperature blood, minus temperature injectate times volume times K. This is the amount of injectate. Mm-hmm. What is continuous cardiac output monitoring? This uses a proximal heating element and a thermistor distally to measure the change in temperature over time. What else can you measure using a pulmonary artery catheter? You can measure central venous pressure, right ventricular pressure, core temperature, left atrial pressure, which equals 
to left ventricular end diastolic pressure, which is an index of preload. How do you standardize cardiac output measurement? It's cardiac output, cardiac output divided by body surface area. Okay, let's completely change topic. What is an acid? An acid is a substance which donates a hydrogen ion, according to the Brunsett-Lowry theory. And how does the body handle acid? It handles it by buffering, compensation and correction. How it works depends on whether it is a respiratory or metabolic acidosis. Okay, so how do kidneys excrete an acid load? Via titratable acids and glutamine. And here, instead of glutamine, I should have said ammonium. Mm. So what do you mean by glutamine, the examiner then asks? Glutamine is broken down to hydrogen ions, which is excreted, and bicarb, which is absorbed. At this point in time, I should have said glutamine. What are the important substances which allow the kidneys to excrete acid load? Phosphate is the most important. Anything else? Bicarbonate and acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate in pathological conditions such as diabetic ketoacidosis. What about the substance that glutamine becomes? Uh, Ammonium. So you're doing a case and the consultant hands you a blood gas result and tells you there's acidemia. How do you read it? Well, it depends on whether the result is pH stat or alpha stat. Um, and here, if you really want to be even more correct, I should have probably said that uh, it would actually depend on the clinical scenario first. Okay. So which one do you use? I would use alpha stat because of the intracellular imidazole groups. Okay. What would you look at next? I would look at the partial pressure of CO2 to see if this is the cause of the acidemia. Is CO2 an acid according to the Bronsted theory? No, it's not, but it forms carbonic acid, which is an acid. Okay, agree. What would you look at next? Next, I will look at the bicarbonate. Even before that, what else could you look at? Uh, The base excess. Okay, great. What is the base excess? So the base excess is the amount of acid or base that needs to be added to the blood and return it to a pH of 7.4 at a pCO2 of 40 millimeters of mercury and a temperature of 37 degrees. Fantastic. I love the detail that you're going through this, you know, knowing your variables, knowing your standardization points is fantastic. Did you tell me what pH was an acidemia? No, I didn't. But a normal pH, depending on the calibration of the machine, is 7.35 to 7.45. So anything less than 7.35. What is the normal base excess? Minus 2 to plus 2. What is significant? So at this point, I'm not too sure where the examiner is heading. Um, So what I said was, it depends on the severity of the acidemia. For example, if the pH is 7.1 and the base excess is minus 5, I would consider that significant. Mm. What are its units? I don't know, but I'm going from first principles. It should be millimoles per litre. Correct. Finally, is albumin an acid? Well, according to the Stewart's hypothesis, it is. How about Bronsted's theory? At this point, I'm not sure what he's getting at, but given he asked this, I deducted it must be so. So I said, well, it donates a hydrogen ion, so it is. Correct. So that was interesting. I think that that seems like a really, really intense viva because you're going through multiple theories of acid base as well as going through some really interesting stuff. So, you know, did you, uh, do most people then learn both theories, the Bronsted-Lowry theory as well as Stewart's theory? So most people will learn about the Bronsted-Lowry theory and I think the modern way of teaching acid-based, Stuart Hutt, Stuart's uh, theory is becoming a lot more prevalent. Mm-hmm. And certainly when I was going through, it, had, um, it was starting to reach traction. So I actually had learned both uh, theories in terms of uh, acid-based. So I, 
I was prepared in in that respect. Mm-hmm. But certainly going into the exam, my my aim was with the theories to keep it simple. So Bronson Lowry, and obviously, um, if they wanted to explore more, I had uh, Stewart's hypothesis as an extra bit of knowledge to sort of discuss further. But I'm going to be honest with you, like I, I'm not an expert on that. Um, and certainly what I had was, was a little card which summarised uh, Stewart's hypothesis. I, I did the same. I didn't know it in any detail really. I knew Bronsted-Lowry theory and I could you know, manipulate various equations and talk about it. And I just knew one small definition for Stewart's hypothesis. So yeah, that's, that's about where I went mm. with that. Okay, let's change tact again. So to keep moving on with this, with this viva, what is shunt? So shunt is blood that goes from the right side of the heart to the left side in a circuit and does not participate in gas exchange. There is physiological and pathological shunt. Physiological shunt includes bronchial veins, thebesian, and the thebesian circulation. And so at this point, the examiner interrupts and says, how much do the bronchial veins contribute to shunt? Very small, less than 1%. What is the thebesian circulation? These are venous tributaries from the heart which drain into the left atrium. What is the color of its blood? It would be dark blue. Okay, go on. So the pathological causes would be VQ mismatch, is VQ mismatch a shunt? No, you're right. It's not. It contributes to venous admixture, but it is not shunt. Okay, anything else? So other causes uh, would be atelectasis, pneumonia, and congenital right-to-left shunts. Okay. What is venous admixture? Uh, venous admixture is the amount of mixed venous blood that needs to be added to end capillary blood to account for the difference seen in PO2 between arterial and end capillary blood. It is calculated using the following equation. So I've got uh, the QS divided by QT equals the end capillary content of oxygen minus the arterial content of oxygen divided by the end capillary uh, content of oxygen minus the mixed venous uh, content of oxygen. And this is a really interesting concept because this is just a theoretical amount, isn't it? The amount of mixed venous blood. Yeah, correct. That's right. So what do you need to measure the um, content of arterial Oxygen in blood. Uh, you need an arterial line. Sounds good. And the mixed venous oxygen content? A pulmonary artery catheter. Mm-hmm. Yes, like we talked about previously. <laughs> yes, and, and at this point, he's obviously reminding me of what I missed out yep, very uh, nice. in the first stem. Very tactful, good. <laughs> then he asks, you know, how do you calculate the um, end capillary content of oxygen? Well, you need to know the ideal alveolar PO2, which is calculated using the alveolar gas equation. So the alveolar gas equation is the fraction in spite of O2 uh, multiplied by the difference in um, atmospheric pressure minus the um, saturated water vapor pressure minus PCO2 divided by the respiratory quotient. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else at the end? Yes, there is a correction factor of plus F, which is um, FiO2 times the pressure of CO2 multiplied by one minus the respiratory quotient divided by the respiratory quotient. And this is normally less than two millimeters of mercury. And, and just as, as an aside, as I tell everyone, this was something that I had learned the night before. <laughs> so um, I was quite fortuitous in that respect. And people say, you know, don't like take, take the day off before the exam. For me, you know, I always say just do what's comfortable. So like I, I was happy to study all the way up to, you know. I've got to say the same. And again, what works for different people works for different people, right? I've never taken a day off just before the exam and it's always worked really well for me. Things like that happen all the time in my experience. Um, But again, do what is right for you. In what instances then does it become significant? So look, interesting question. And um, at this point in my head, I'm just going, I'm just going to read off the formula. So Mm -hmm. I just basically um, just point up an elevated uh, 
partial pressure of CO2, very low uh, respiratory quotient. Um, and I also should have pointed out uh, mm. that the high FiO2, which is probably the most important factor. And I like that because you know, these are often questions that you've not really prepared for. But if you think about things logically, you can just kind of look at the equation, which is what you did, and just go, well, if that goes up, the number goes up. If that goes up, the number goes up. And just make, make as much sense of it as you can. Yeah. So then he goes on to say, what is the respiratory quotient? So the respiratory quotient is the amount of CO2 produced divided by the amount of oxygen consumed at a steady state. It is dependent on the substrates used for energy. For example, carbohydrates um, has a respiratory quotient of 1 and fats have a respiratory quotient of 0.7. What is the respiratory quotient of alcohol? uh, I don't know. And the reason why I I didn't know and and, um, Mm -hmm. I purposely said that was because you can actually work it out. But the problem with with working it out is that it takes time and and I knew that I wasn't going to be able to... um, uh, be able to reproduce the formula. So there's a formula for how you measure respiratory quotient, mm-hmm. which is um, it's the amount of um, carbon in the molecule uh, divided by the amount of carbon plus the amount of hydrogen ion divided by four mm. minus the amount of uh, oxygen. So with that formula, you could, you know, if you know that uh, alcohol is, uh, you know, or ethanol is C2, H6O, you can actually calculate it. And the answer would be, you know, 0.67. And obviously you're doing well by this stage. You know, you're moving through the Viva efficiently and quickly. And even just by saying that, you know, that, you know, I'm playing this game. I'm moving through and not trying to waste time, trying to calculate things just because. And that's part of this game anyway. So I, I, uh, I don't imagine a lot of people knew that formula. I didn't know that formula. Yeah, yeah look, I mean, it's just one, it's, I think this is one thing that he asked where it was, it's one of those fact things. But a lot of times, you know, if you miss out on facts, you can yeah. work them out. But I guess, you know, it's, it's a thing in terms of, you know, you got, you got to know absolutely in terms of, you know, when you can start working things out and when. Do you reckon you, know, you were just doing so well that he just wanted to flex a little bit and go, hey, do you know this? <laughs> Look, <And laughs> I'm going to be honest with you, during, during this exam, you think every single question is, you know, super important. And <laughs> That's right. I, I felt the pressure and I also felt the pressure that, look, I, I'm not going to be able to, you know, calculate this uh, under the pressure of, of this exam because I've never done before. I, I'd certainly mm-hmm. known about the formula, but it's not something that I had, I had used before or got asked before. So, yeah, what, okay. yeah. Okay, it goes on to say, what is the content equation? So oxygen content is saturations multiplied by hemoglobin multiplied by 1.34, which is Huffner's constant, which is ideally 1.39, mm-hmm. um, plus, the, plus the partial pressure of oxygen multiplied by 0.003. Just curious, so you say it's ideally 1.39, but the number we use is 1.34. Why is this? So 1.39 is with deoxy and oxyhemoglobin. However, because of the presence of other hemoglobins, such as sulfur, hemoglobins, methemoglobins, carboxyhemoglobin, this value becomes 1.34. Mm-hmm. And so what is this? And I'm pointing to the 0.003 value. So this is Henry's solubility coefficient based on his law, which is the amount of oxygen dissolved for a given PO2. And, and that was my answer. And, and just as an addition, mm-hmm. so the other numbers that candidates will often see is uh, 0.03. Mm-hmm. And the reason why the, the two numbers are present is depends on depends on your units. Mm-hmm. So 0. 0.003 is mils per deciliter, mm-hmm. um, whereas 0. 0.03 is mils per liter. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so do know that they both exist and that they exist because of the different units out there. And it often then extrapolates to a question about the oxygen flux, you know, multiplying by cardiac output. And everyone knows cardiac output is you know five liters per minute or five thousand mils per minute. 
but less people will be able to go. It's 50 deciliters per minute, yes. which is the number you'd, you'd need at that point. And, and just, to, just to kind of give it some realism, obviously we're going through a lot of words and definitions here. And, you know, as you go through this podcast, it'd be just worthwhile to have Google in front of you and be able to go, oh, well, Henry's solubility is this. Mm. If, you're, you know, if you've just started out, you might be getting lost with all the terms we're using, but trust me, as you go through this, these will all become self-evident. Okay, so moving on. How do you measure the saturation of oxygen? So there's indirect and direct ways of measuring it. Uh, indirect includes pulse oximetry and direct uses infrared absorption of a blood sample. Um, and at this point, look, I, I'd forgotten the name of, of what the, this is called. Mm-hmm. Um, I should have also said measurement of PO2. Um, many machines actually indirectly solve for saturations using the hemoglobin oxygen, oxygen dissociation curve um, and an algorithm. Good. Do you know what it's called? I, I can't remember. Okay. Cooximetry. Uh, so how else can you measure content? Uh, by using the Lloyd, Haldane and Van Slyke technique, using saponintolyze the blood cells to release uh, oxygen. Um, now, I forgot to add that, uh, that uh, they do this with the addition of potassium cyanide. Okay. Um, and and this, is in, this is in Brandis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is a manometer which measures the pressure change. Okay. Can 100% oxygen fix a true shunt? It depends on the degree of shunt. No, just the shunt itself, the examiner then says? Uh, no. So you're disagreeing with the examiner? or? So look, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm not, I'm not too sure what the examiner was asking because if you look at the ISO shunt diagram... Hmm. Um, in, in, uh, in nuns. In, in nuns. Uh, certainly, once your shunt fraction becomes more than 30%, um, it's incredibly hard to fix the uh, partial pressure with increasing FiO2. Hmm. So when he asked me about the shunt itself, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure. So at this point, just to keep the viva going, I, I just said no. And, um, at that point, the end of the viva anyway? Yeah, and the viva, yeah. It's the next stem. Okay. So the next part, uh, we'll keep moving. So what happens when you cut your hand with a knife? So again, this was a very fortuitous question that um, I actually had learned probably a couple of days before and actually I had prepared an answer. So the answer, the answer you hear is, is something that I actually prepared uh, beforehand, mm-hmm. okay? So a number of things happen. One, you get the polysynaptic withdrawal reflex. Two, the pain pathway. Three, the sympathetic response. Four, the immunological response. And five, the coagulation response. I mean, that already sounds like a fantastically comprehensive answer, but, you know, that's great that now even I have a great model to re- reproduce his answers are fantastic. I really like what you've done there because when I've answered this question previously, I've, I think I've pretty much talked about the neural pathways, but what you've done very co- correctly, which we tell all our, all our candidates and trainees to do is list the variables. So list before going into detail. So you've just listed points and you haven't even had to go into the detail, which means you've moved across this very first question very, very quickly. Yeah, correct. And, and, one of the skills that you can develop over, you know, your practice with um, with vivas is to try to go broad and produce an answer to each stem. So uh, for each stem, you know, with the withdrawal relief reflex, the pain pathway, the sympathetic response, the immunological response, the coagulation response, I had a little spew for each one in case they wanted to go down, you know, whichever pathway they wanted to discuss. Exactly. So if I asked you, well, what's the pain pathway, then you would go into extraordinary detail of that. Correct. But you didn't even need to. And that's what I really want to emphasize. You just mentioned five points. And they've moved on. That's far quicker than memorizing all the detail for one point. Yeah, correct. And, and funnily enough, they did ask me about the pain pathway next. So, okay, that's good. So we'll, we'll hear about that too. <laughs> there you go. So describe the withdrawal reflex. 
So the afferent synapse in the dorsal horn where locally they cause activation of the alpha motor neurons on the flexor muscles and inhibition of the extensor muscles. What is this reflex called? It's a monosynaptic uh, reflex if you're talking about one reflex arc. However, there are many other levels uh, which are involved, including movement of the other arms and legs to make it a polysynaptic reflex. What happens to the other hand? It flexes too. And at, at this point, look, my, I, I, I basically... Uh, answer the question out of reflex without thinking about it. So, so the answer is wrong. So it actually, ex- it actually does the opposite. Okay. It actually extends. Okay. It's good to know that your human stance. <laughs> that's fantastic. No, it actually extends the examiner offers. Tell me about the pain pathway. So the transmission of pain can be divided into physiological, pathological, and modulation. Uh, physiological can then be divided into first, second, and third order neurons. First order neurons are A delta fibers, which are myelinated and are mechanical thermal and unmyelinated C fibers, which are unmyelinated and polymodal. How fast do they travel? A delta fibers about 10 to 15 meters per second. That's what I, that's what I said, but um, actually it's probably about 10 to 30 meters per second. Unmyelinated C fibers about 0.5 to 1 meters per second. Can you draw me a diagram with the spinal cord? Yes, so on my diagram, I'll draw showing the AO delta fibers synapsing on the substantia gelatinosa in 1 and 5, and the C fibers synapsing on the gel- substantia gelatinosa in 1 and 2. Uh, then they cross via Lassau's tract and go up via the spinothalamic tracts. There are two types. So there's the paleospinothalamic, which is the primitive form and ends in the medulla and subject to modulation. Uh, it transmits diffuse pain. The other is the neospinothalamic, which ends directly in the thalamus and transmits sharp pain. And again, we'll be able to link to a diagram of this just to help uh, people remember this. Why do people rub their hands when they cut their hand? Uh, it produces a, wide, a wider area of signals through the spinal cord and so decreases the primary afferent pain stimulus. Describe the sympathetic pathway. Sympathetic output is prim- primarily a thoracolumbar output. At what levels does it come out? Uh, T1 to about L2. Continue. So it starts from the vasomotor center in the medulla, exits at the spinal cord, and is important in a number of actions, including increasing the heart rate and getting the body ready for the flight or fight response. Um, now, I also start describing its pre-ganglionic and post-ganglionic innovations. Um, so okay. for, those, for those of you listening, don't, don't forget to add those in your answer. Sounds good. What are the stress hormones released? Cortisol is primarily the main stress hormones. Are there any other hormones? And at this point, the bell rings and I breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> um, so, so the answer to that would have been adrenaline, noradrenaline, and renin, angiotensin, aldosterone. So, you know, we've just gone through the complete physiology viva that you did for your exam. I mean, what are your take-home points from this, from, I guess, a, yeah, just to help others' exam tips point of view? Yeah. So what I... I hope is that candidates who do enough vivas will actually encounter questions that they've heard of before and will actually have answers to a lot of the questions that they are asked. Because at the end of the day, you know, physiology and pharmacology, they haven't changed over the last, you know, 100 years. Hmm. Um, there's certainly been a couple of new points, but, you know, by and large, they've remained the same. So, you know, if you do enough vivas, you know, a lot of these questions I, I had heard of before. And as you can see, you know, from my answer, it's not, it's not because, you know, I have a brilliant answer because I'm able to think on my feet. Mm. Um, I had a really good answer because I had done enough vivas and I actually had thought about the answers when I went home and thought about how I would answer the question if I had the opportunity mm. again. 
Now, that, that would be the first point. The second point would be, as you go through the STEM, you're going to make mistakes. It's okay to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things is that it's important to be humble during this whole process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you make a mistake, just acknowledge that, yeah, mm. you were wrong. And the, the, the examiners are often very nice and they'll give you the opportunity to, to correct yourself. And yeah, as you can see, you know, the examiners did guide me on, on a couple of things and I was able to get yeah, most things in the end. Yeah, that's right. As in, yeah, by no means is this the most perfect vibe ever. And, and the beautiful thing is it didn't matter. You got your pass. But I also like the fact that it, you hopefully be fortunate enough to have lots of or enough people around you who've done vibes before and passed the exam. And a lot of them will give you the vibes that they've had. And there's a, you know, a finite pool of vibes that were created. So, you know, if you can just get enough vibes and don't worry about messing up a few vibes at the start, just keep doing and keep doing refreshing yourself uh, re-evaluating the vibers, thinking about how you do again, even testing your mate and saying the very same viber so that they can practice. It's just a really great way of getting everyone together. And finally, once you've done your exam, write down as best as you can word for word your viber and pass it over to us at anesthesiapodcast at gmail.com. And there, there we go. Great. All right. So now I think we got, we're up to our pharmacolo- to my pharmacology viber. Starting question, what is MAC? So MAC is the minimum alveolar concentration of a volatile, which prevents movement to a supermaximal stimulus. It is measured at standard pressure, which is 100% oxygen. And after 15 minutes, once entitled equilibrium has been achieved with no other drugs, such as induction agents, opioids, or muscle relaxants. And you mentioned here that this could be wrong and probably benzodiazepines is more correct? The reason why I said that was, if you actually look at the studies, and, and, and I think it just follows on from the next question, where he asked me, if you don't use induction agents, how do you get them off to sleep? So my answer was with the volatile. But mm-hmm. I, I, I'm led to believe that with the um, initial experiments that they were done, mm-hmm. um, they did use induction agents. Mm-hmm. So that's why when you talk about the definition of MAC and no other drugs mm-hmm. um, to be used, the, the more correct one is probably benzodiazepines rather than induction agents because mm-hmm. I, do, I do think that they use induction agents to get yeah. them off to sleep initially. And it's interesting with this because they often talk about it being a set of male volunteers of a certain age, mm. I think with a, maybe an average age of 40, and the surgical st- surgical incision is a very standard one across the forearm. And it seems like there's a, there's a whole lot of history and interesting stuff about this very MAC concept. Yes. What's going on? Uh, if you don't use induction agents, how do you get them off to sleep? So this is where I talked about with the volatile, but as I said before, um, previously discussed that uh, this was... Um, Probably not 100% true, and I think they use induction agents uh, for this. Why do we use it? So we use it as a measure of potency between other volatiles where it is a constant when multiplying its oil gas coefficient with its MAC. Um, secondly, it's an objective measure of awareness. And thirdly, um, there are also other MAC numbers available. So how else is it relevant? So at this point, I'm not too sure what he's asking. So, um, so what I said was, well, MAC represents the mean, mode, and median of the response. Can you go into that a bit? So what that means is when you look at the MAC curves, what you want to see is the definition of what it means, which is it it represents 50% of the population to a standard surgical response. So with a MAC of 1, what it represents is that mean. Mm -hmm. And what happens to MAC when you give 70% nitrous with sevoflurane? MAC in this case is additive. So with 70% nitrous, this is about 0.7 MAC, and you need another 0.3 MAC of sevoflurane to get one MAC. Unfortunately, most of our machines just calculate that for us, but we could do it de novo. Now, what are the different types of MACs? There is MAC-AWAIT, which is about 0.3, 
there is MACBA, which depending on the volatile is about 1.5. Fantastic. And what is Mac? What is bar in MACBA? Blocking of autonomic response. I actually, never, I actually never knew that. That's great. I'm learning a bit here as well. Now, does nitrous have the same MAC-awake values as volatiles? No, it actually has a higher MAC-awake value. Why? Because nitrous is much less potent than other volatiles, and it has a MAC value of 104%. Can you draw me a MAC response curve with MAC? So here I'll draw the Y-axis, which is the response, and the X-axis, which is MAC, and I'll draw a steep sigmoid curve with the ED50 at a MAC of 1. And MAC-awake? So here I'll draw the graph uh, with the ED50 at a MAC of 0.3. And MAC bar? And I'll draw another graph um, where the ED50 is a MAC of 1.5. Is there another type of stimulus that can be used other than a surgical incision? Yes, you can use a nerve stimulator. What kind of stimulus would you give? You would give a supramaximal stimulus, which is two to three times uh, more than the threshold potential to depolarize all composite nerve fibers. And what does the response have to be to be considered positive? It, it has to be purposeful res- movement. Can you just go through that? So this is not just the normal supermaximal twitch that you do, do with the numeroscopy monitor. Why, does, why is this purposeful now? So they consider purposeful as a sign of awareness. In other words, that it's just not a reflex action. Mm-hmm. So what you want to see is the patient localizing that stimulus. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's noxious to them. They want to... And it's a, it's a standard stimulus, at yeah. least. Okay, moving on. What are the side effects of atropine? So at this point, I was, I was, uh, I was a little bit flustered because I felt that the first stem hadn't gone that well. So okay. um, th- there's a mnemonic, which um, you know, everyone's heard of, red as a beat, mad as a hatter, dry as a bone, blind as a bat, hot as a hair, but it completely escaped me. So what I said was, look, side effects are dose-dependent, and for the cardiovascular system, this would include tachycardia, uh, increasing myocardial oxygen demand and decreasing oxygen supply. And because it is a tertiary amine, it crosses the blood-brain barrier in cause sedation and confusion. There are also idiosyncratic reactions like anaphylaxis and other adverse reactions. Yeah, okay, so definitely would have been easier to just go red as a beet, mad as a hatter, dry as a bone, blind as a bat, and hot as a hare. Yeah, look, I, I probably wouldn't... Um, say that. Say that. <laughs> I, I would uh, talk it in terms of medical terms. So... Whether in terms of midriasis, as in flushing, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think the um, mnemonic that I remember for the anti-atropine syndrome would be sludge mass. And we'll put a link to that because I think it's a pretty popular one that people people do. So to move on, what do patients also complain about when you give this pre-med? Dry mouth. What would someone look like with an atropine overdose? Confused and tachycardic. And what would be the colour of their skin? So I panicked here and I just said pale. And this is wrong. It, yeah. it, it's flushed. Red and flushed. Yes. Yeah. What happens to their temperature? It goes up, especially in children, because atropine inhibits their ability to sweat. So what happens to the color of the skin? Now the examiner asks. Uh, so, this is, so this is the classic where I was talking about where the examiner is trying to lead you to the right answer. What you said. So what I said was, look, so they vasodilate and they become red. Mm. Have you heard of anticholinergic syndrome? Yes. What other drug can cause this? Hyacine or scopolamine. How do you treat central anticholinergic syndrome? You use an anticholinesterase agent, which has a tertiary amine, so that it can cross the blood-brain barrier like um, physostigmine. Why don't we use physostigmine anymore in our practice? And look, I'm going to be honest with you, I had no idea that we didn't use it anymore in our practice. 
Um, but given that he asked this question, I deduced it was probably from its side effects. So what I said was, because of its ability to cross the blood-brain barrier, not only um, are there muscarinic effects, but also central nicotinic effects, which may cause seizures, muscle fasciculations, and paralysis. What else can Pfizer-Sigmine be used to treat? I don't know, but possible benzodiazepine overdose. So this was um, partly guessed and partly correct. Um, it can also be used for tricyclic antidepressant overdoses and antihistamine overdoses as well. Can atropine cause a bradycardia? Uh, yes, it can in small doses. Why? I think it's a partial agonist effect. So, so this is wrong. So, what, so that's what I said. Um, but uh, the reason why atropine causes a bradycardia in small doses, it's described as either a central effect or a basal Yarich reflex. Yeah, okay. What are the differences between atropine and glycopyrrolate? Glycopyrrolate has a quaternary ammonium and so does not cross the blood-brain barrier and does not cause sedation or confusion. What about the time to onset? Uh, yes, atropine has a faster onset of action than glycopyrrolate, so one versus three minutes. Okay, so now they're moving on. What is anaphylaxis? Anaphylaxis is a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction mediated by um, IgE and requires prior sensitization. On exposure to the antigen again, this releases mediators such as histamine, which causes hypotension, bronchoconstriction, and urticaria. Can you tell me more about how and what mediators are released? So with the sensitized, with the sensitization event, IgE is exposed on mast cells and basophils, and when exposed to the antigen, they cross-link and release large amounts of histamine, serotonin, bradykinin, prostaglandins, and slow-releasing factors of anaphylaxis. I remember one of my mates actually getting the same question and they also want a triptase there, but that's the thing you mentioned. Yeah. Um, you measure, sorry. Anyway, yes, quite an inflammatory soup. The examiner goes on to say, how would you treat it? So treatment would be um, oxygen, adrenaline, H1 antagonists such as promethazine and finally a steroid like dexamethasone. This was the answer that I had previously, but just remember that now with the treatment of anaphylaxis, it's literally just um, oxygen and adrenaline. And the other thing that I forgot to say was um, to remove the offending agent. Uh, as well. Would you say fluid as well? Yeah, fluid yeah. as well, yeah. But certainly H1 antagonists uh, mm. and steroid are not, are not first-line treatments of uh, anaphylaxis. Absolutely. So why adrenaline, the examiner goes on to say? So adrenaline is a potent alpha and beta adrenal receptor agonist, which reverses the hypotension, bronchodilates, and stabilizes mast cells to prevent further degranulation. Why steroids? Steroids will not be the first line, but it is used because it decreases the production of prostaglandins and slow-releasing factors of anaphylaxis. Can you tell me more about the pathway? So these mediators are produced from membrane phospholipids and converted into arachidonic acid via phospholipase A2, which are then made into prostaglandins and leukotrienes via COX-1 and 2. So steroids inhibits phospholipase uh, A2, um, and decreases the conversion of phospholipids to arachidonic acids. And again, we'll give a link to just show this diagram. It's quite complicated. What are the different types of histamine receptors? So there are H1, H2, and H3 receptors. H1 are GQ proteins and cause vasodilation and bronchoconstriction. Um, I also forgot to mention here that uh, it's also important in the transmission of nausea and vomiting in the nucleus solitaris and vestibular nucleus. So I've gone to say H2 are GS proteins and cause an increase in gastric acid secretion. H3 and G are GI proteins, which are presynaptic and cause negative feedback inhibition. What would you use to block H1 receptors? Promethazine. 
That's your normal finergan every day. Yeah. And what would you use to block H2 receptors? Ranitidine. We used to use cimetidine in the past. Why don't we use it anymore? Uh, because it inhibits cytochrome P450 and so can potentiate the effects of other drugs which are dependent on the system for metabolism. How else do you treat bronchoconstriction? So apart from adrenaline, you can use beta-2 agonists such as salbutamol. You can also use uh, aminophilin. So examine the interrupts. So how does aminophilin work? Aminophilin is a phosphodiesterase inhibitor which decreases the breakdown of cyclic AMP and cyclic GMP, which decreases calcium influx and causes bronchodilation. How is oxygen made? So oxygen is made either by fractional distillation or filtered through an artificial zeolite made of silica. With fractional distillation, air is cooled to minus 180 degrees and compressed to 5 bar. And when the temperatures increase, nitrogen boils off first as it has a lower boiling point and that leaves uh, just the oxygen. With filtration, gases such as nitrogen and water are trapped, leaving oxygen only. Hmm. What are its physicochemical properties? Oxygen is a clear, colourless gas that has a molecular weight of 32. It has a boiling point of minus 180 degrees Celsius and a critical point of minus 120 degrees Celsius. I also missed out saying that it's odourless as well as it supports combustion as well. In the hospital setting, oxygen is cooled and compressed as a liquid and comes out of the mains at a pressure of 4 bar and is also stored in cylinders at 137 bar. How is oxygen stored in the body? It's primarily stored in hemoglobin. Anywhere else? It's also stored in your functional residual capacity, dissolved in blood and tissue and in myoglobin. What are the pharmacokinetics once it enters the cell? It enters uh, the mitochondria and allows oxidative phosphorylation to occur and is converted by cytochrome AA3 and oxidase to water. Okay, we're probably going into physiology here. What are the potential toxicities with oxygen? Well, first it causes primary toxicity thought to be due to the production of oxygen radicals and lipid peroxidation. It is associated with high concentrations of oxygen, for example, using 60% of oxygen for more than 24 hours. Uh, Secondly, it can cause convulsions, but only at atmospheres more than two, and this is only relevant for hyperbaric conditions. What other gaseous mixture is made with oxygen? This would be Antinox, which is a 50-50 mix of oxygen and nitrous and utilises the pointing effect. Can you tell me a bit more about this effect? So by mixing the two gases, it changes both their physical chemical properties where the boiling point is now minus 6 degrees Celsius. This is relevant because if it is exposed to temperatures lower than this, it becomes a liquid. And then when used again, the oxygen comes out first and so does not provide any analgesia to the patient. And then afterwards, it gives out a hypoxic mixture predominantly of nitrous oxide and can cause death. Yeah, wow. So that seems like a really practical thing that's very important to learn. So what is diffusion hypoxia? So this is implicated with the use of uh, nitrous because of its high concentrations and low solubility. When it is turned off and washes out into the alveoli, it dilutes the oxygen in the alveoli, causing hypoxia. This is why it is important to make sure that there is 100% oxygen when washing out nitrous. Apart from nitrous, what other gases have analgesic effects? Luckily, again, saved by the bell. At this point, I probably would have said xenon. And, um, you know, I, spoke to, I actually spoke to the examiner afterwards about this question. He did offer that uh, other volatiles um, also have some analgesic effects, mm. which is the concept of MAC. But look, again, that's a little bit controversial. If, if you actually look at some texts, they'll say that volatiles don't have any analgesic effects. but Ex- it, Except for pentherine, methoxyfluorine. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so methoxyfluorine would be one that, that we use commonly. 
avoids analgesic effects. Again, you've gone through so much stuff in that Viva. What do you reckon are the take-home points from that, looking back on it now? So, look, for this pharmacology Viva, I certainly didn't feel as if I did as well with this compared to the physiology Viva. It's that whole idea of just working through the questions that the examiner asked. And again, not a perfect Viva by any means, but what I did find was that the examiners did try to guide me in terms of what their answers or what the answers should be or what the answers that they wanted to hear. Again, you know, it's it's a bit of a skill that uh, I think hopefully that a lot of you will pick up mm-hmm. when you do Vivas, um, is that uh, a lot of, you know, when, when you do do the Vivas and you get the flow of the Vivas, mm. with that interaction, you, you will sort of get the feeling in terms of where the examiner is trying to head you down to. And if you let yourself be let down the path, and at least you can be let down to what the, you know, what the, answer, what the answer should be. That's interesting because I think to a lot of us, I never thought of the examination process as a collegial process or like a friendly, almost um, a mentoring process. Like examinations have always been a bit adversarial. You know, they're examining me to either pass or fail me, which is daunting, and I must conquer this exam. But I think just the way that this vibe went, it really was about both of you having a discussion, asking some questions, and even when you, you know, didn't get an answer perfectly right, they just guided you along. So it would be the right thing to do to just let the exam, exam happen yeah. and not be... You, you, you want the examiners on your side. I think that some candidates can put uh, the examiners offside mm-hmm. by adamantly believing that their answer is mm-hmm. correct. Mm-hmm. So would you say, if you thought the examiner was wrong and you were absolutely right, would you disagree with them in the exam? I would. I would not. I, I <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the thing is... With physiology and pharmacology, and because you know I, I've I've taught this for so long, I acknowledge the fact that there are multiple sources with different versions of the truth in terms of you know knowledge and what you know people believe to be true. Mm-hmm. There are certain you know variations of it. So, and it all depends on what what textbook you get your you, you source your knowledge from. Mm. So the thing that I did when I approached this exam is that, yes, you know, I may have thought that a concept is correct, but I certainly wasn't going to be adamant about it because I also recognised that, you know, if the, if the examiner was leading me to a point where mm-hmm. he felt that what I was saying was incorrect, I would, you know, humbly accept it. And you know what? It's only a question. Mm-hmm. There are, you know, many more, many more questions that, uh, you, you know, you can sort of move on and score marks on. Mm-hmm. So you know, in that respect, ha- happy to, you know, accept it and happy to move on. Yeah, sounds good. So on that note, uh, thanks very much for your time and sharing that vibe of that very incredible experience, initially traumatic, but looking back on it, thank goodness you went through that because now you're an anesthetist who gets to teach this to others. Thanks everyone for listening to Anesthesia Coffee Break. And for the next episode, we're going to go through my painful viva. Please share, subscribe, and uh, yeah, contact us uh, if you have any questions and we'll link to as much stuff on those story notes as possible. Have a good one.